0: Welcome to In The Deep. I'm your host, Katherine Ingram. As I've mentioned in previous podcasts, I'm in a transitional period between homes. So I haven't been doing any live sessions or live Zoom sessions for a while. And I've therefore changed the usual format of the podcast. Just temporarily, I've been doing a few interviews. And recently, I had put out on a previous podcast the invitation for people to send questions by email, and here are a few from the ones I've received. Also, I encourage you to send in whatever ones you might have, because I'll be doing it this way for a few more times before we have live sessions again. This first question is from Sarah. My question is in relation to endurance and resilience. I've been living with a chronic physical illness for nearly two decades, living without a cure or any real hope of a cure. And I often look for the positive in the fact that it has made me a deeper person, more empathic, more resilient, etc. And recently I realized, as I've experienced more physical issues, that my resilience appears to wax and wane. It even seems as if I am less strong as a result of the chronicity of certain suffering. And this feels very disappointing, Previously, I could hold on to the fact that despite experiencing certain losses, I may gain some inner strength. I was wondering if these feelings of needing resilience or expecting myself to be resilient are a form of a story, and in actual fact, we do not get stronger from certain types of pain. Or maybe the word stronger is not accurate. Perhaps we are simply more aware of our pain and suffering and not more resilient. Okay, Sarah. So this is a very interesting point. I agree. I think the Nietzsche line, that which doesn't kill me makes me stronger, is not always, it's not always just one or the other of those two options. Maybe it's not a binary thing. Maybe there are some interim possibilities and that in some ways one gets stronger, but perhaps in some ways one is simply more worn down. As I always say, it comes down to how you're using your attention. And there may be a kind of having to live with a certain sense of diminishment in one's physical abilities, especially when that's the direction it's going. You use the word certain. Um, I would encourage you to, rather than focusing on what is going to be missing or what is missing, to instead focus on what's left and what's here. And that's not to deny that there can be a great weariness with an ongoing persistent circumstance. That's, it's just hard. It's plain hard. And you can't put any spiritual spin on it. Those all become... Lies or self-delusions that one indulges in for a while, as long as one can, perhaps. But the reality will break through. It's terribly hard to have chronic pain. And it doesn't mean that there are no joys or no times of creativity and interest in other things. So then it becomes a toggle for you and for me, too, in my own sufferings. How much attention does this particular thing need? I know it calls for attention, it, it, but does one collapse the entire focus on that and on the sense of, oh, it's going to be with me till I die? That may be true, but how much does one need to think about it? If it is true, if it is to be, then how much time do you have to spend, in addition to enduring it, thinking about it? <laughs> And there are other ways of directing the attention that becomes a habit. Part of the struggle is is in the hope that it's going to be different or that it should have been some other way. Your life doesn't need to be defined by this painful circumstance. It's part of your life. It's the burden you carry, as each of us carries our own burdens. And while it's true that some burdens certainly seem heavier than others, there is the possibility of carrying our own burdens in a in a more ergonomic ways. So are you one of the people who can carry a burden and can live a beautiful life also? I suspect you are Sarah from our many talks. I have seen your brightness and your easy laughter and things that you find funny or witty. And so I'm saying to you here, carry on. Carry on without an expectation that anything has to be different. Say, yes, I accept it as it is. I don't have to like all of it. Acceptance doesn't require that you like it. Part of the acceptance is that some things you just don't like. (sighs) And if there are things you can do to enhance your sense of well-being, whether physical or emotional, then be happy to include those along the way as well. This next question comes from Robin. I have noticed that although my growing family provides me with many opportunities to feel of service and connected to them, It also leaves me with a sense that there is now some time to give to a broader community in another way. I've volunteered in schools before, volunteered time in leading a meditation group, and I write to a prisoner in Alabama who's on death row. He shares my thoughts with other men there on how to find some inner peace, and that has all been very fulfilling. Yet I do find that this question is often on my mind now. How do I make the best use of the final third of my life? I'm well aware that there's value in just being calm and content, that this state is of benefit to others who come across my path. And I'm also aware that in the end it all falls away. I've no intention or concern about leaving my mark on the world. Rather, there's the question that sits within me. How can I be of the best service now and in the coming years. Okay. Well, Robin, um, goodness, I mean, your life has been heretofore a life of service, raising children who are now grown, volunteering in various ways, and being a kind voice in the life of someone who's, Life is no doubt incredibly difficult, living on death row. So at least for now, up to now, your life has had clear meaning and purpose. And now your question is, what next? What should I do with the remaining time? And I like that you say you don't need to leave a mark. At least that burden is off the table. But then there is the question of spending the time, how to spend the time. It's a position of great privilege to even be able to ask that question and to have open time that is unscheduled with no expectations of it having to be filled in a certain way. So many people in the world probably don't even get more than a few days of that in a lifetime, many, many people. My inclination, my own inclination, and I can only offer any of these conversations informed by my own direct experience. And I'm not saying that that is what fits for you or any, anyone else or many other people, but um, it's really all I have to ha- offer. I tend to wait for a pull to do something. I wait for a pull, I wait for sort of a gathering of creative energy that might take months or even years for a vision of the creative act to become clear to me. In most of the things that I've done in terms of creativity, they grew inside of me quite a long time. And many times things have sort of bubbled inside of me that just kind of came to naught (laughs) that I didn't ever act on and, um, or at least haven't yet. And the times are wasting in terms of how much more I would be able to, uh, offer in those ways that I've imagined at times, like writing a memoir that I always, I always stop at the very first line of it actually, (laughs) because, Number one, I don't really like thinking about my life, so much so that I would be able to write a whole memoir. It seems presumptuous. I've always thought memoirs were a tiny bit presumptuous. And, you know, kind of like, why do we want to hear about your life? Even with lives that are interesting, it just seems somewhat a little bit, I don't know, uh, not something that I've felt inclined to do, dive into my personal story and blast it around. Um, I've thought about couching it in terms of what I've learned from others. That might be interesting because I feel I've, I've been lucky to meet so many amazing people, wise people. But anyway, whether that comes to be or not, I don't know. If the energy swirls into enough of a cohesion... And if the circumstances were right, that, you know, writing would um, seem like the next thing to do. Though another problem is I don't really like writing. Uh, I don't like just the aloneness of it and the constant thinking about it. It's sort of like always having homework when you're on a writing project. You're never really off. You're having to catch certain insights and thoughts. And usually I let all of that just go by. This is a very long-winded way of saying that I wait for the impulse, for the spontaneous impulse. And sometimes I get that spontaneous impulse and I embark on a type of journey or a kind of project and maybe some steps in or even quite a ways in, I might realize, no, this is not quite fitting any longer. It might have fit initially but then the signs might start up that uh this is not really a fit and i'm so okay with changing course and i really recommend that i don't obviously i don't i'm not saying shirk your commitments and responsibilities that would cause other people great inconvenience or harm but if it's just you on your own making decisions and it's just your your own cost of time or inconvenience then uh It's better to nip in the bud things that are becoming quite a wayward, off-course feeling inside of oneself sooner rather than later. You don't want to just kind of spend a whole lot of your time and a whole lot of your mental resources on something that is a dead end for you. I think it's perfectly okay to flow along in your life in easy ways. There may be a little background murmuring that's on the lookout for something that might appeal. That's okay, too, that you're, you, have a, you have an inclination to do something with your time, your last third, as you say, optimistically, of course. You have an inclination that will engender a type of attention that's on the lookout or at least in the receiving mode of anything that appeals that you might do with your time. But if nothing comes up, I wouldn't force it. And as you say, your own calm and sweetness, it sounds like you have a lot of people in your life, certainly big family, it's a lot. That's how you will be remembered if you care about such a thing. Is just the good vibes and the good times and the, and the love. So <laughs> let the pull rather than the push guide you. That's my recommendation based on my experience. And sometimes I'm willing, you know, if I know something has to change, like I, I have many times in my life been in circumstances that I really didn't have the option to just let it keep dragging on. There were things that were going to force a change, you know, like a financial decision that had to be made to sell a house, for instance. I've had to sometimes sit uncomfortably longer than I would have preferred because the the next steps weren't yet clear. And sometimes I've had to make decisions based on having to kind of make a leap into the next thing and knowing okay I'm 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 having to make a leap out of this circumstance into another one but having the understanding that if the other one doesn't feel quite right I can make another change I still have that kind of privilege in life and that is a privilege and I recognize it but I am aware that sometimes I can know that I'm going from one thing to another that just had to be done. And I don't necessarily feel stuck in that next thing. One hopes it works out just because one has put a lot of effort into the transition. But I always bow to the reality of things, almost always. Occasionally I try to fight it, but um, I always lose in that case. And I so appreciate your question in that I can feel your good nature that wants to have meaning and wants to be of service. So rest in that and let's see where it leads. The next question is from Wendy she says, context. Two weeks ago, I was in the ED, the emergency department, unexpectedly. I wondered if I was dying. I was surrounded by people and machines, and in the midst of the chaos, I breathed into the space I could find to center myself. I anchored on and off, and I'm still not sure what happened. I think I had a big shock response I was left at midnight in a dark ward, feeling that all I could do was surrender and see where that took me. I felt both lonely and alone. When I got through the scared part, I thought about birth and death and that we do those on our own. My question is, please, can you talk about aloneness and loneliness? Yes, I can definitely talk about aloneness and loneliness. Yeah. First off, I can certainly imagine being alone in the context of an emergency that would amplify the worst of the moments of aloneness and loneliness and laying in a darkened ward and not knowing what was to happen next, even uh, whether you were going, going to live or die. And yet, you did exactly what I would have suggested and what I would do myself. Find the center, ground yourself there as much as possible, as you said, on and off. Because yes, of course, fear would arise. And the aloneness would be rather predominant in the circumstance. But when we're confronted with moments of extreme challenge, We find reserves, we rise to the occasion, especially if your awareness has been somewhat trained in knowing where the center is, in having visited the center so frequently or often enough that it quickly slides there, it quickly defaults there. My Buddhist teachers from long ago used to talk about something called the death-conscious moment. And they talked about it in the context of the, of the need and the benefits of, of a life of practice, of practicing being in that centered moment as a way of life, being in that center such that when death was upon us, the awareness out of habit would go there, the death-conscious moment. And Now, I don't necessarily subscribe to the idea that we should be living our lives practicing for a death-conscious moment. And that was one of the places I took issue with some of the Buddhist teachings along the way, because there was a great emphasis on the importance of that moment, because there was a belief, and sometimes some of our teachers talked about the belief that that moment would have a very strong influence on what came next after that moment. In other words, what might happen post-death into some other new um, incarnation. I don't subscribe to any of those theories any longer. So the death conscious moment is really just yet another moment in a long life. However, it would be advantageous to be in the center of oneself, to be calm, to have that as a habit. It would be advantageous all the way through life in all the difficult moments and then especially in the death conscious moment. So your default in the moments that you were laying there in that hospital went exactly to that moment of centeredness, of quiet. And although it wasn't as steady as you might have liked, it did happen that that's where the attention went. So now the only recommendation is go there more frequently while things are more or less back to normal go there let that be your sweet spot that you intend to hang out in a lot in the day and in the evening <laughs> Anyway that's how I play it in the day I notice that As I've said so many times, I do pay attention to the news, to the world news. I'm way in the weeds with all kinds of information. Most of it is troubling in terms of what it portends for the future, whether we're looking at economic crash, climate chaos, various forms of collapse, all the crazy artificial intelligence stuff that's happening, war, rising crime, all of these subjects come with, like the information comes with unpleasant feelings, let's face it, that it just does. And I notice I'll ingest a bunch of that information and I'll notice that it starts naturally, it starts causing feelings of nervousness or despair or concern, especially for the people in my life, and all the little creatures. And then at some point, blessedly, some, at some point, the awareness will shift into also, also. Just like I said to both Robin and Sarah, it comes to a, okay, yes, this is what it is. And then things get very quiet. So it's the ability to see a difficult circumstance, whether you're watching it as a witness or you're actually in it, watching it as a witness there as well. It's that ability to find that quiet moment and that just says, okay, now this. Now this is what's happening. Wow, this is a weird one, laying in a hospital by myself in a darkened room going through a medical emergency. But here it is. And those feelings of aloneness and loneliness, they dissipate also (laughs) in those moments of, of just quiet, of stillness. They dissipate. They do need a little story to keep them going. And once the story's not there, even though technically you are alone. This story isn't haunting you. The context is not as relevant. One thinks about all the people who would have died alone in circumstances, not in a hospital where they were being cared for, but out in some wilderness where they were lost, or in the ocean or any number of situations. It's a reminder, it's a reminder to have this deep and profound relationship with your own sanctuary, your own stillness, your own okayness. And our final question is from Noah. And Noah asks, Why are we here? Who and what are we? What is this life? And he also asks, what is the best use of my time here? Why are we here? (laughs) Who and what are we? What is this life? These are the eternal Dharma questions. They're the questions that often launch us into a spiritual journey. And there's no answer for them. It's way above my pay grade. (laughs) And I would say it's above the pay grade of everybody else. I am distrustful, frankly, of those who claim to have answers to these questions. I think they're either delusional or dishonest. Because this is a mystery. This is a grand mystery. As Leonard said in his song, Boogie Street... Boogie Street being a metaphor for life. Though all the maps of blood and flesh are posted on the door, there's no one who has told us yet what Boogie Street is for. And you know the truth when you hear it. That's the truth. No one has told us yet. They've told us, we should say, they have said it, but (laughs) there's no evidence of it. People have all kinds of subjective experiences. And make grand claims. But let's face it, we just do not know. We can know that we are here though. So when you ask who and what are we, one of the powers of the who am I question or who are you question is that it silences the mind. You go straight into beingness. You can't describe it but you know it because you are experiencing it. It's your most intimate experience, that of being. And that's enough. That's the power of that question. I find in my own life, ironically, that though I don't feel there are answers to these questions, I'm most comfortable with people who have at least asked those questions. In other words, who have gone on a kind of dharmic investigation of what is this all about. And then it's even more satisfying and comfortable to be with those who, having gone on that journey, come straight into the mystery and rest there in the unknowing and in the wonder. But at least having asked, at least wanting to peel back the veils rather than just bang around in the most superficial of considerations. Many people spend their entire lives in what the Buddha called idle chatter. It was considered one of the ten unwholesome uh, mind states. (laughs) Idle chatter, just talking about nothing much at all, in which people are making noises at each other, and attempting some kind of connection. Now, I'm not as averse, of course, to that. I've spent a fair deal of my own life in idle chatter. But I do see the point that when the mind is continually on a certain track of base concepts, that it would condition the mind in those ways, that it would condition the neural pathways to kind of stay in that in that realm the buddha also said that only talk of the dharma was what he called onward leading <laughs> now again i have my own issues with a lot of the the old time buddhist ways and and concepts and precepts and so on but one can understand the direction that that he pointed And while I don't judge people for spending their time that way, just talking about nothing much, just hanging around, just cruising along, fine. It would get a little bit tedious for me because it doesn't mesh with my own interests. When one one is with someone who you sense was a seeker, even though there was, in the end, no answers to be found... The journey, the journey is enriching. The Dharma journey of asking those questions deepens a person and puts them in a certain frequency such that when they meet another one, let's say a former seeker who (laughs) understands that you just land in the unknown again, kind of where you started, but very, very transformed by the journey itself. You feel kindred to that person. And this is not to say that people who spend their lives in idle chatter don't feel kindred to the people that also spend their lives in idle chatter. That may be fine. I think that's more and more the case in this world. When you see what's going on online, when you see the level of conversation that goes on in social media and in the news and in everywhere, in the public domain, you realize that it's a frequency that is, that is not subtle, that is in many ways juvenile at best. But may they be happy, may we all be happy. And I guess what I'm saying, Noah, is that though I have no answers for you about those first three questions, Why are we here? Who and what are we? What is this life? I have no answers for those, but I so appreciate that you've asked the questions, and of course it's why we've been hanging out for many years across the miles, and we have sat in many a a room of having these kinds of conversations. With the last one, what is the best use of my time here? I can only offer a similar answer as I did to Robin, whatever gives your life meaning is the best use of your time, and that's gonna have to be up to you. For many people, being of service or feeling a lot of love in their lives, being helpful even just to the, the ones they love, creating, doing a creative project, having a dharma life of these kinds of connections. There's so many things that give meaning to particular people and lots of things that might give meaning that I wouldn't necessarily uh, be inclined to think about. But one has to find that for oneself. And know it when you see it. Know when you are in the moments where you feel almost a dissolution of a sense of self and, a, and at one with whatever it is, whatever the activity is, or the silent moments sitting together with a friend, you know, you, f- you feel a sense of, of rightness, that you're in the right spot, that, that you just feel right in your heart. However, whatever activities or non-activities give you that sense, is what gives meaning to the moments that you're living. And I would say, that's the best use of your life. This has been In The Deep. You can find the entire list of In The Deep podcasts at KatherineIngram.com, where you can also book a private phone session and view upcoming events such as our monthly Zoom sessions. I want to deeply thank our donors for your support and encourage our other regular listeners to consider making either a one-time or recurring donation. We would also be grateful for a review on Apple Podcasts or on whatever platform you're listening. Till next time.